0: Welcome to the Revel and Reveal podcast. I'm your host, Deanna Enfeld. Welcome back. This week we have creator and founder of the This Plus That podcast, Brandy Stanley, who is a writer, a podcaster, a creative mind that is obsessed with the paradoxes of life. And that is something that we both connect on and talk about throughout this episode. Um, Focusing on love, I think it's important to understand the human experience of this desire to have permanence with a relationship, but also the knowledge that nothing can last. And that's not to be Grim, (laughs) it's more of just like an acceptance that we all kind of go through, Um, and looking at what it means to have a soulmate or to have this blazing relationship with that knowledge and moving through the paradoxes of relationship and love, and also queer identity, um, identity in general, and the paradoxes of wanting to separate ourselves from nature, even though we are nature, and this idea that we have to be in nature when I mean. That's exactly what we are, right? Um, so there's a lot of good insights in this episode, just of bringing out new perspectives and playing with the paradoxes of life and not taking everything so black and white. I think it's important to open ourselves up to the possibilities, that, or question if duality is what is consistent in life, um. I've often struggled with that idea of, do we have to have duality? Do we have to have balance? Is there always a, this plus that? Is there always this paradox to life? And I think that's what a lot of people struggle with, of identifying or accepting the complexities and intersectionality of the human experience. And yeah, I think this, I mean, it's such a deep, deep conversation. So this one hour, um, will hopefully shed a little bit light or insight into someone who constantly revolves these questions around in their writing and in their podcast. And yeah, if you haven't checked out the This Plus That podcast, please do so. Um, It is amazing, especially if you're open to the duality and paradoxes of life. I feel like I've said paradox so many times, but I think it's an amazing word for this experience. So um, thank you again to Brandy for coming on and talking with me, and I hope you enjoy. Okay, awesome. Thank you so much for being on. Um, I feel like it's been a long time in the making. And with the topic of love this month, I really want to just hear kind of one your journey and where it's taken you thus far. Um, If we could start out with that. I know that's a loaded question.
1: (laughs) Well, yeah. I mean, if you want to direct me somewhere specific about love, I'm happy to go into that for sure. But yeah, yeah, um, it's, it's a big thing.
0: For me, I grew up in a very small town where we had this idea of like, everyone was like, oh, we're going to get married one day and have all Mm -hmm. these things. And so I'd love to know kind of like with your upbringing, was there that sense of like, I have to complete all of these things or these milestones Mm -hmm. around love and kind of how has that shifted for you over the course of the years?
1: Yeah. um, I think that, yeah, I I grew up in Dallas. Um, My parents were not particularly religious. Um, my dad had grown up in a house where they sort of went to like, um, I don't know, like Presbyterian or Episcopalian sort of services here and there, but I've, I never heard my grandparents talk about faith, but I knew that my grandfather and grandmother sometimes went on my dad's side. And then, um, I grew up with my stepmother and her family sort of had a very complicated relationship with, uh, Catholicism. And so there was a period of time when I was really young that we went to like Catholic mass on Easter and Christmas. Um, but it was not a place where we talked about, like my, my household was not a place where we talked about faith or religion really in any way. And yeah, I, I grew up sort of an only child. I have an older half-brother, but was never really around him when I was young. So for all intents and purposes, I, it was just me and my parents. And yeah, um, it was the South, you know, I was in Dallas. So there were some, I feel like, you know, it was like cultural Christianity rather than practicing Christianity. So I was around it a lot, but I didn't really hear about again, like faith or Jesus or anything really particularly Christian until I was probably in mid high school. Um, And so that of course is tied into love and my conceptions of love. And, you know, I think I, I had a tough sort of family. I mean, my stepmother was an alcoholic and so, um, you know, it was just, it was a tough time at home, I think a lot of the time. And, So that alone, I think, sort of conveyed some messages about love and um, both, I think, in like um, familial or, you know, even in friendship context, like how that affected me and my perception of love and relationships and attachment. But also, yeah, I think romantically... Yeah, things were just hard from the time I was small, like my dad and biological mother divorced when I was one and a half. So there were complicated things going on around love for sure um, from early in my conception. So um, I, I think like a lot of people, I had the common sort of American understanding and also like that generally means a sort of like at least light Christian understanding of love. And I ended up going to a faith-based college as well in Arkansas because um, I I joined a church like midway through high school when things was, were just like really tough. And I found people who were actually pretty incredible people and decided to start going to church. And yeah, so because of that, I sort of found my way to a faith-based college as well because many of them were going there. And Yeah, I think being in a Christian college at like 18 or 19, you know, like everybody's getting married by 21 or 22. If you're not sort of married before you even graduate, it was like, wow, I'm terrible and single. And, you know, I'm like, I'm, I'm falling behind and, um, you know, there's my cat. Hi, buddy. Come here. (laughs) Um, you know, like I was, roommates with people who were getting married right after college. And we're talking about like huge savings, you know, like starting to save for retirement and all like just very common, you know, sort of narrative that you hear in both heteronormativity and, you know, just sort of standard relationship culture in America, but also beyond that. Um, and so, yeah, but I think, um, yeah, I've both in faith and I think also in relationships and work and everything else, I've been someone who kind of questions the norm. And so I never really felt like I fit into the sort of common narrative. And I think later I started to realize that was probably partly tied into my just sort of um, identity as queer. And I know this is a long answer, but yeah, I think the obviously like I think we all sort of engage with what love means constantly and it changes constantly over time but I think I did just a ton of work on disentangling um, what I was taught about relationships and queerness and uh, sexuality and faith you know and probably over the course of about a 10-year span when I sort of in my mid twenties came out and stepped away from church for a long time and still have been stepped away from like organized practice religion in that way. Um, or let's call it a community, I guess, of practice. And so, yeah, I think, you know, I'm sure we'll get into more of like where I feel about it today, but that's (laughs) sort of the story of where I came from at least.
0: Yeah. That's, it's interesting. Um, I feel like a lot of people have similar experiences. It's this universal experience of like, why is everyone else experiencing this thing, but I'm not, Um, or you're kind of, I've always been curious if the people getting married, if they feel like they're missing out on something or if they feel like they've made it. Well, like, I definitely remember like certain people in my life, like not more
1: recently, but probably 10 years ago, people who were, had been married since the time, you know, like to high school sweethearts or college people, um, who were like, man, like you're doing so many cool things with your life <laughs> that were like, yeah, they seemed kind of jealous of like my ability to like do more, I guess that they had sort of given up in relationship or having children.
0: Yeah. I remember yeah. asking my mom if she believed in soulmates, and I'm curious how you mm-hmm. feel about the idea of soulmates and like twin flames. But I asked her, and she was just like, "No, you just pick one and hope that they're nice." And I was like, "Oh, <laughs> thank <laughs> you so much." Yeah, was it's only a like really 14. great way to start out. Yeah. <laughs> um. How has with the spiritual side of things and that feeling of like connected souls and stuff? How has your yeah. um, one? Do you believe in soulmates? Two has that kind of definition of soulmate changed for you as you've explored um, your queer identity?
1: Yeah, I think the idea of soulmate or twin flames has gone through a lot of different iterations over time for me. I think it's funny, like the idea, I think I'm really sitting right now in a space of like considering attachment stuff and working through my own attachment issues and, um, let's call them attachment dynamics. (laughs) I don't want to make them sound bad. They are, they're just, they are what they are. Um, but yeah, I'm just, I'm sort of working through that. And I feel like a lot of the like shadow side of that right now and have been for a while. And I think that, um, in a lot of my life, I sort of thought, you know, like I'm, I'm, I'm a person who cares a lot about like purpose and passion and doing things that are really cool. And like, you know, like, being as alive as I can while well, I have this opportunity. And so I think I sort of connected the idea of like this great romance with that also, you know, that it wasn't real unless there was some sort of like deep passion. And I, and not just at a sexual level, but like, you know, this like real spiritual level of connection with somebody. And I think um, over time, and especially now in working through attachment stuff, I have started to realize how much with love, like I conflate, um, yeah, sort of like raw connection with like meaning that isn't actually real. <laughs> like, I think it actually is a t- an attachment, um, response and, uh, you know, in the past at least have been really attracted to folks who sort of triggered that sort of attachment stuff with me and have worked through that. And, like that always felt like those were twin flames, you know, like, Oh my God, we just have such an incredible spiritual connection. Um, and yeah, I think I've, I've learned to see that in a different light. And I'm, I think I'm trying to find the balance between something that does feel spiritually connected and aligned and beautiful and has moments of incredible connection and passion or whatever. But, um, I think, yeah, now even doing work, I think in more recently, I think with like working through, you know, what you learn as a child of an alcoholic parent, um, in terms of relationship that, um, I have a tendency to be, or at least have had a tendency to be attracted to excitement and, um, chaos and less inclined for the stable. The stable to me, I thought was just boring. Like, oh, there's not actually anything here. And so, yeah, I think I've, I'm coming to a place of learning steadiness and safety and security and, um, reliability and like all those things that, you know, Esther Perel talks about with love. That's like, you kind of have to have a mix of both. And, um, to me, I think the idea of twin flame or soulmate sort of forgets the, the part where you, it is actually a lot of work. Any relationship is work. And over time, that's going to look a lot different if you're in a long-term relationship. So yeah, I don't, I don't think I believe in twin flame or soulmate so much as I believe that like the universe sort of has divine timing for everything. So maybe right now I meet someone that is like, you know, a very deep spiritual alignment, but maybe it's not forever. (laughs) And, you know, I have to trust that eventually other things will come along that are for me and in, in their right time.
0: And how has that, I think one of the things about heteronormative relationships that they really push is that permanence is a huge factor in relationship.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: And you mentioned that divine timing that they could come in and they might not be forever. Yeah. How has that felt, kind of releasing the grip of permanence of a relationship? Because I've definitely struggled with it. I'm like, yeah, well, it's hard. We have to be forever. What are you talking
1: about? <laughs> yeah, it's funny. I mean, because that notion is really very counter to the common narrative in Christianity, for sure, which is, again, also like deeply embedded in heteronormative sort of concepts of relationships. Um, what would I say about that? I mean, Yeah, obviously, like when I get into anything I do work or dating or whatever, like I want it to be forever, because when I when I decide to do something, it's usually something that I really care about. Like, I don't, I'm not really a person who tends to choose things uh, lightly. Um, And so though I am working on that too. You know, like, I mean, what I write about a lot is paradox, you know, like these are, these are not separate notions, right? Like both can exist one in the same, but I think in terms of permanence um, yes, I think it's worth sort of questioning the notion that everything should um, be long-term and forever. And I think polyamory um, people who practice polyamory and, um, uh, queerness also have taught me a lot about that, that to hold things with a little bit more lightness and then I don't own or control somebody else. And, you know, sort of all of those things and not one one person can't sort of fulfill all of my expectations or needs in the world as a person. Um, but yeah, I, I think for me, I got to a place in my life. I remember I have a friend, um, who probably five years ago. Now i I ran into him in a coffee shop and he was like, I, I had been to his wedding and he was like, uh, my, my wife and I are divorcing. And I think it was only like several months to a year later. And he was like, I think I failed, you know, like, cause the relationship is ending. And I was like, I don't know. I just feel like buddy that, you know, as long as I am my most authentic self over the course of a relationship, that is success for me. Um, And that doesn't mean that like I did it perfectly by any means, you know, I think, um, I have blind spots just like everybody else. And I'm learning to sort of dig into those over time and work on them and, um, whatever. So it's, it's not that I'm not being authentic if I haven't sort of learned something yet, but I think as long as I'm being as true to myself as possible over the course of a relationship, that to me is the only metric of success. You know, did I treat someone else? Well, did I, maintain my own values over the course of it? Did I practice holding my own boundaries more? Did I, um, did I make sure to nourish myself before asking someone else to fill my cup for me? Um, those sorts of things, you know, like, am I actually tending to what I feel like is important to me? And, um, yeah. Did I continue to try to improve inside of a container, like a relationship that sort of forces a lot of shit to come up? So yeah. Um, I hope that somewhat answered your question. I think I meandered around, but yeah, I think that's sort of my answer is like, I don't, I don't know. Like, I mean, all spiritual traditions, like if you get out of outside of evangelical Christianity and the sort of common narrative actually speak mostly about impermanence, you know, like God has changed Um, there is no sort of ground we can stand on forever. And I don't know why we would ever expect that relationship would be any different. And even if you are in a partnership that lasts from the time you're very young or like, you know, until the time you die with this, you know, one or more people um, it's still over, (laughs) you know, like it ends at some point, death is real. So um, I think that's more of a practice for me too, is just becoming more um, it's funny. I have a podcast actually with someone named Andreas Weber where he talks about the connections of love and death. You know, like they're they are the two sides of the same coin, you know, like we just have to be in more practice, I think, of embracing death because death is actually what makes life more alive.
0: Mm. Yeah, I love that perspective. I recently had a friend share with me their fear that. They're worried that no relationship will ever work out. And I was just mm-hmm. like, what does that mean to work out? Like, where is that line of like, this is working out? I don't, Right. I think that's something we say a lot. is like, oh, it'll work <laughs> out. But mm-hmm. the idea of the permanence, I think is something that everyone can look at, especially as they kind of decondition themselves or ask mm-hmm. themselves like, what is it I actually want out of yeah. a relationship? And I think looking at it in a way where it's like, as long as I'm showing up more as myself, then that's what the factor is of success is. Yeah, um, I, can I interject
1: one more thing? Oh, yeah, I think the other part of that is like what, um yeah, like to your to your question, like what is working out? I'm like, I just even like is if the only metric is that you literally stay together for the rest of time, that doesn't account for like what happens if you married an abuser. That doesn't account for. Like, what if you have a relationship that's like, not, it's just like, you don't communicate. It's terrible. You stay together just for the idea of being with someone for the rest of your life. Like that can't possibly be the metric of success. Um, So yeah, it's, it's such a bizarre, like, well, um, and, and also like, what a high bar. You know, like I think I think we look around and it's like easy to think that everybody around us is together and they've been together for all time, you know, because we see like whatever the cliche, like modern movies or whatever, you know, like or movies for all time, or just like one very clean conception of what it's like, you know, like you get together, there's um conflict, and then you're together forever, and that's all we see, you know. And um the reality of life is that like almost everything ends actually everything ends It's so, the like death and taxes, you know, like it's all going to end at some point. And so, but to, so to like use that as a barometer for whether or not we were successful in a relationship or that we're like valid humans, you know, like I, I'm not sure. And not to say that, like, I haven't been there, you know, like I'm, I mean, I think yesterday on a, a phone call with a friend, I was like, I just want like, long-term relationship. And I want, like, I want a job that works out and I want close community and like living in community and meals together all the time. You know, like I have all these like expectations of what my life is supposed to look like in terms of like permanence and lasting forever and being successful at life. But really, I think we're just all walking around with that. Like that as a yardstick just makes us feel like constant failures, you know? Um, and I think that's part of why I also love like, I think indigenous knowledge has really and that's such a broad like overgeneralization but like anything that has sort of taught me that um I as a human I am also part of the larger like I am nature like I am part of an ecosystem and so me being in a relationship and I think I learned this originally really from Robin Wall Kim, or not Robin Wall Kimmer. um oh shoot um Kim Tallbear uh I think I was listening to her once talk about um, sort of native conceptions of polyamory and that often they consider themselves polyamorous because you're not only in relationship romantically, if you're dating someone, but you're also in relationship to your home and to your yard and to like your, your city and the, the nature around you. And, you know, your the tree in your front yard and, you know, all of those things. And so to think that we're either alone, which is a thing I con I consistently struggle with in, you know, long periods of uh being single, um, and just in general in life, like, you know, wherever my I think either romantic or you know, friend relationships are at, just thinking, oh, I'm so alone. But like it's such a false narrative because we are actually connected at all times to the larger ecosystem. I am constantly in relationship with everything around me and my work and everything else. So just because one, one part of a puzzle that is really prioritized in our culture, like romantic love is very highly prioritized. And it's not that it's not very valuable to your life, but there are so many other things beyond that. And I think that's also where like queerness has sort of taught me a lot too, and sort of challenging that notion.
0: Yeah. I think part of that, relationship is this idea of the ownership and permanence like when we're kids we get told like oh they're family so we have to love them they're with us forever because they're family so there's this idea that like like your chosen family is with you forever and you can't get rid of them once you love them and there's all this baggage that comes with love of like okay this is it now like that's it um and I love what you're saying about indigenous culture I think we are, I think there is something in queerness of like, because there's so, you're choosing that chosen family and you're creating that connectedness that in comparison with the modern worlds, we're kind of closing ourselves off. We're going into apartments and houses that we're just alone in and right. we don't have that constant community that you would um, where you're connected to nature. I mean, if you live in the city and like New York city, you're not experiencing nature. You're just kind of you go into your box and then you go into the subway. That's another box. And then you go into your cubicle and then you go home. So it's just like this sense of, there is that isolation factor. And then I think when you realize that you can have that community and it's not all about romantic love, then that's when that feeling, that pull, like, I think we're all trying to get back to that. And I'm also curious of the permanence with queerness identity. Um it, total shift of things but I think for me it's been something that I've been afraid of saying of like I am I identify as queer I identify Mm -hmm. this way because of that permanence thing and I think Mm -hmm. as people are coming out as more fluid it's been interesting to kind of loosen that grip of like oh I don't have to be this thing forever I can let Mm -hmm. myself change I was I think growing up, it's kind of like, once you say it, like, that's it, that's your identity forever. Um, so I'm curious what your journey has been with that and yeah, in light of the permanence, how has that changed for you?
1: Yeah. I do want to just like push back slightly on the idea that like New York doesn't have nature. Like there are people all around you and we are nature. It's just a different kind of nature. Um, and, and, you know, yeah, the, the isolation is real though, you know, like the sort of, colonial colonialists slash capitalism of it all. And I'm sure it's much bigger than that, but like the way we've industrialized that that creates sort of compartmentalization over time. So like everyone has their two car garage and I do my, you know, like it's not living communally and that is real. Um, But yeah, in terms of um, like identity and identifying as queer, I mean, I came out at 27 it was not long after I had just started to date women. And um, I remember, (laughs) I think this is like not an uncommon journey, but I think I was uncomfortable with calling myself. Like at the time it was also, I'm 41 now. So like um, it's been a bit of time and uh, it's amazing how quickly things change. (laughs) So like, I remember at the time that it was either Like I mostly knew about like gay or lesbian, you know, so and I knew that um, the word lesbian really did not feel like it fit me. And that also has a lot of historical complications, like Mm -hmm. a lot of that has to do with like my conception of that at the time had a lot to do with how we conceive of what it means to be lesbian and the boxes we put lesbians in. Um, so that's really complicated, but like, for me, that was what I knew at the time. And I was like, oh, well, that doesn't feel right. But so the most comfortable way I knew how to talk about it was just bisexuality. Cause I knew like, there was no, like no one I knew of in media or in my inner circles. We're talking about, um, uh, not just polyamory, but, um, oh my God, why it starts with a P what's the word? Oh, um when you're pan, like no one was using that language at the time. Um, and so, yeah, I just started with bisexuality and, um, especially I think with family members that felt the most comfortable, it was like a word they sort of understood. Um, and then I remember it's so funny. There's, um, an online Facebook group called Colorado queers and, uh, originally it was, um, I think it was called auto straddle. Cause it started as some sort of like offshoot of people who were big fans of auto straddle, the like media publication that's queer. And so I joined that group, like after coming out, cause I was like, Oh, my people like, here's a place I can find others. <laughs> and like within a few months of joining the Facebook group, they changed the name of it to Colorado queers. And I remember this like initial internal reaction where I was like, I didn't make that choice. Like I don't identify as queer. I don't understand what that even means. Like you're sort of making that choice for me and not that like being a part of a Facebook group is really like a big identifier for you in the public. But anyway, just, I remember feeling really uncomfortable about it because when I first came out, I had no clue what that actually really meant. Like I hadn't, I just hadn't been in the community long enough to really understand what everybody else meant by that. And now I'm old enough to know that everybody means something different by that. Um, but for me, I think too, I, for a long time have seen the idea of queer as two. generally, we talk about it in two very different ways, but often conflate the two. One is I think your sexual orientation. So who do you romantically or sexually partner with? Basically, and the other one to me is actually a value system. Like I'm queer because it's a value to me to question the norm. I'm queer because I believe in justice and equality, you know, like these things. And and that's also not totally fair because not everyone believes that. But like whatever it is, I think whatever you believe in your value system of queerness, I do think that we sort of, it helps to sort of think about it in those two separate ways. Like one is actually my sexual identity. And the other one is just sort of how I orient to the world kind of politically, like just whatever your values are. And so, um, yeah, it didn't, I don't think it took me long to sort of start to actually take that on as I learned more and more about what queer was. And to me, that really was like an orientation in the world of, you know, I think this is also where it runs into Christianity or like mysticism or faith. Like, I think I started after doing just a shitload of internal work, started to actually see that those two things to me are, um, basically one and the same. They're like practices of mystery and impermanence and paradox and contradiction and qu- like asking really good questions and, um, Yeah. Never really having solid ground. So I think in that way, like when you sort of get to a place where you're like, but wait, today I'm queer, but what if tomorrow I'm this, you know, like, I don't want to identify as this, that like, you start to sort of break that open. And I think I've always been really fascinated by language. Language is really important to me. And I love how words, yeah, mean something. And I think, um, I think that you can start to sort of use I think language is a um I love this line from the movie Arrival that like really works for me in a lot of things where she says, um Amy Adams' character says, um, I forget what she's referring to specifically, but like, oh, language. Like she says, language can either be a weapon or a tool. And I think to me when I use a label, it's a tool for me to communicate to someone a broad set of concepts So, like, I don't have enough time to give you all of the context around. Right. So when I say queer, it's an easy way to tell somebody else, like a general concept of something that helps identify me. Um, but it becomes a weapon when we start to use it against each other in a way that's like, well, you can't change from that. Or, um, you know, or even I think in queer culture, there's also also a tendency to think that like there's only one right way to be queer and it's hyper-political and it cares about all the same justice issues and it's active in all of these ways, you know, that like maybe isn't for everyone or maybe someone else like other people do um, quote unquote activism in a different way than it looks in the standard sort of, sort of common narrative or whatever, right? Um, so I think it beca- it can really become a weapon that we use against each other or ourselves if we think that, um, yeah, it's like religion, right? Again, like a weapon or a tool. I can either use it as a tool to connect to whatever I think is divine or mysterious about the world or like a lot of history, I can use it as a weapon to like control people and to say that there's only right way, one right way to access the divine or one right way to be in the world um, that gives me access to heaven or whatever. Um, So yeah, I think that sort of notion about the difference between weapon and tool has been one that's been really useful for me.
0: Mm -hmm. I've definitely experienced that with queerness and coming to terms with bisexuality. There's always (laughs) that. Not always, but I've experienced that of this feeling of like, am I queer enough or am I gay enough? Am I allowed mm-hmm. to talk about it? I don't know. And I've seen like there's lots of reels now saying, like, if you say you're bisexual, like most women say they're bisexual, but will only date men, or like that still doesn't fall in the category of queer enough. Mm-hmm. Um, but I like your perception of it, of it's not just a sexuality and something I've been exploring is the, the concept of like physical attraction versus romantic attraction as well like those mm-hmm. can be two different things like I can have physical attraction and consider myself pansexual but also have romantic attraction to very specific people and like the way you experience it is okay yeah. <laughs> there's no wrong way to experience it um, yeah so, that's fair. I think
1: that I think that um yeah, I get really sort of ruffled about the I, the notion of queer enough. Um as far as I'm concerned, I don't care if a straight person calls himself queer and here's why. Um I think when we talk about things like queerness or any like appropriation, which is often speaking about how someone else who's outside of a perceived community uses something that's um, sort of common from within a different identity group to their own benefit without the consequences that are faced by the identity group, the marginalized group typically, right? And so when queer folks get angry about someone else calling themselves queer, to me, the underlying problem is not that you use that as a label. To me, the problem is that I still face problems because I identify as queer and you maybe can get away with it. I Mm. want you to actually be able to get away with it. That's not a problem. (laughs) Like I want you to not have to come out all the time. If you, your femme identity, you know, like if you look like a femme and you like, everyone sees you as straight, unless you outright have to tell them that you're a queer like, I want that for, I mean, I don't want you to have to report to everyone your sexuality or your identity every time, but like, I want you to be able to walk through the world in a way that doesn't have to care about your safety or your access to jobs or any of those things because of how you identify. I want that. The The thing is, I want that for us too, like the people in the marginalized identity group. So I think when we, again, sort of like weaponize identity in a way that says you can't use this or you can use this solely because you do or do not meet a completely arbitrary set, arbitrary set of identity markers, meaning like even in cultural appropriation, a black person could be Cuban, a black person could also be Nigerian. And those two people have experienced very different sets of circumstances because they're Black. So when we say like you can or cannot use something because that's a Black marker of identity and something that we've used in our group, that might not be true for all Black people. The the problem is not the stealing of something. It's that like the people who actually are in the marginalized identity group still face consequences because of that. I think that's... um, (laughs) I'm going to give lots of caveats around that to say that like, I have complicated feelings about the idea of appropriation and I, at the heart of it, I want everyone to have safe, equal access to all the things that we deserve in life. Right. Mm -hmm. So I, my, my contention is not, I think we're just, we often in queer community, I think create infighting and not solidarity when we begin to define what is or is not the right kind of queer. And so when someone who's maybe straight or maybe they're queer, but like they've only dated a man for the last 10 years, like I know plenty of those people, trust me, they're very queer, <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, and well, maybe that's not even fair to say, like, who am I to define what queer is, you know, like, um, but yeah, I, there is no, um, there's just no clean line around those things in a way that's fair to any of us. Cause yeah, the getting angry about someone using the word queer, if they haven't met a certain, like if I'm, I'm, I even remember someone reaching out to me on social media who follows me at some point telling me she's probably 10 years, at least maybe even 15 years younger than I am and was talking about how she'd been to a queer conference, and they were sitting in a circle that was being led by these other younger queers. And those queers were basically telling everyone in the group that if they weren't polyamorous, that they weren't queer. And I just felt so heartbroken that I think that even, I think younger generations have been given sort of an excess amount of that level of like... um. It's like the further we got in marginalization the more intense we had to become about what the boundaries were about our identities. And so I understand like how that has happened like over time that as queer and trans um folks especially started to face greater and greater sort of external harm from people outside quote unquote of identity groups that it's like when Um, I think this is a very typical trauma response, basically, the more afraid you get, the more intense you have to become about the boundaries that keep you safe. But the more we've done that, and the more we've sort of allowed that to continue in queer community, um, I think younger generations have adopted this level of like the, like if like that, that sort of, um, practice of defining identity groups so severely has become more intense. And so, um, Yeah. I think what I would like us to get to is like sort of taking a step back and being like, what is it we're actually asking for here? Like, I don't need all the right people to identify as queer. What I need actually is to have equal access to work, to love, to resources, to a safe life, you know, like quote unquote, whatever that means. Um, but not walking around knowing that my identity is going to cause possibly cause me, um, harm like a black trans woman or something, you know, like, um, so like, I want all those people and I want all of us to have, um, yeah, equal access more than I care about what we're all called.
0: Yeah. it. It seems like everyone is taking it in a very like, individualized way instead of kind of branching out and seeing like how it all affects everyone, including marginalization. Um, a good example of this had me thinking, um, I work at a school where there is a first generation um, affinity group, um, first generation college, and they asked me to join and I got very, very um timid about it because Mm -hmm. yes I am a first generation college but the concept of first generation like holds a lot of weight to me and I'm like those most people who are first generation have a very different experience than what I had yes I didn't have resources of someone who is like 10 generations going to like this one school I didn't I had a specific experience, but I almost <laughs> was like afraid to join. Cause it was like, well, my experience isn't enough. And I mean, that's my own shit. <laughs> like that well, both ends. Yeah,
1: yeah. That's, I mean, I think that's still a common concept. I mean, like, I think this is why even like when we talk about like left versus right politics, like, I think we, it would do the left a good service to start to recognize that Poverty can be real for white people too. You know, like there, it's a different kind of experience. It really is because you do still have a lot more access to a lot more things and you're forgiven for a lot more things. Like there's just so many things that are different about a white experience. But when we talk about intersectionality, this is what we mean. It doesn't just go in one direction, it goes in all directions. Right. Mm -hmm. Like otherwise, we're just um, sort of replicating the same. Um, harmful beliefs and practices that we did that created it in the first place. So yeah, like maybe, um, I I don't know how you identify, but if you're white and feeling like you can't go to a first generation, you know, college affinity group, it's like, well, yeah, what are the definitions that, like that, it, it, that should be the definition. Like, is it your first generation? Yes. But I, I, I still think nonetheless, it's important to consider what you're considering. Like when I go in that group, how, how do I affect people around me because of my, my race and my background and my experience? Um, and how do I need to be cautious about, um, how I engage with other people, you know, but, um, yeah, it's, I, um, you know, I, I remember like a few years ago, I was working with someone on this like farm restaurant hotel thing in the um, mountains of Colorado. And we were talking about how, cause my, my, a lot of my work background has to do with branding and marketing, mm-hmm. which seems unrelated, but um, it it's identity. Like how do you identify a, a business? You know, like what does it look like? What does it sound like or whatever? And we were talking about like literally how we wanted to design the space, you know, was it super masculine? Was it really feminine? Was it, like, where did it fit into that? And we, I think, got into this really cool conversation that was about, like, I think when we, um, a lot of times, and maybe even again, like, particularly in queer community, that we, um, yeah, we again sort of, like, narrowed down the niche of what that looks like so much that, like, even I think the way that we... Um, my experience in queerness and actually even in love is often that like, you either have to look very feminine or you have to look androgynous or masculine. Like that's how you have to be. And there is no in between, um, which is still sort of falling into like a heteronormative trap of like what we're supposed to look like in a romantic partnership. But also like, again, paradox, like speaks to the nature of the like reality that there are masculine and feminine energies in the world like that that exists so it's real Mm -hmm. but anyway um we just started talking started talking about like how we wanted something that was like not less gender but more gender like how can we like express in like a fully formed way like just um a complete mashup of all of this stuff you know like huge flowers or like very beautiful wood stuff that felt more masculine or whatever. And just like really mashing all those things together. So it was like, um, allowing us to live, I think in a way where again, like I talk about this often, like not having to cut off pieces of who you are in order to belong, like in order to be queer, I don't want to cut off the pieces of me that are actually like quite feminine, even if I'm attracted to really feminine people, for instance, you know? Um, I don't know. I want, I want more of everything. I want more gender. I want more sexuality. I want more of it. And like not having to narrow ourselves down. So to such small pieces of who we are when we're really our full selves in order to like actually find community.
0: Yeah. I've, it's really interesting. You mentioned about it's either androgynous or feminine because I, I, A lot of conversations I've had with people about sexuality, they'll say things like they would never date a bisexual man or a feminine man. And I'm just like, why (laughs) do we get to play with our gender and our experience, but we can't offer that to, like, men have to be this way. They're they're either gay or very straight. And Mm -hmm. I I do want that for everyone, too. It's like, everyone should be able to play and come at sexuality and gender with like this curiosity instead of kind of this this is it this is what I have to be um
1: mm-hmm.
0: so I really love that did that ever finish the <laughs> the restaurant
1: hotel no <laughs> it did, the project didn't didn't sort of come to fruition we did sort of fully flesh out the brand but we never like actually got the project off the ground oh. as you might imagine it's quite expensive
0: to um, start oh. a farm restaurant and a hotel in one <laughs> for sure it's interesting though because my background is marketing and branding too. So I wonder if that's similar, just like our obsession with identity <laughs> has kind of landed us in similar experiences with that. Yeah, Yeah, probably. That's probably
1: also like, um, I think it has a lot to do with my astrology. Also, I have like six planets in my first house, which is all about identity also. So, or like, yeah. Almost everything of mine is basically in my first house. Oh, interesting. It's <laughs> all about identity. I don't know a ton about houses, but I remember thinking that I'm mean, being like, oh God, this is why my life is just all about identity <laughs> issues. <laughs>
0: all about shifting. Um mine's in the ninth house, which is all about philosophy and education and mm. that. So similar like yeah. realms. Um that is super interesting though. I do wanna um did you come out to the church before you Left, know. <laughs> yeah, what was your experience um, with that?
1: <laughs> no, I was already sort of outside of church. I guess you could say when I came. By the time I came out, I had stepped away. I just like I don't know. Early life was really. Uh, it was a journey, man. <laughs> like it was a. It was a lot of things, um and yeah, I had moved back to Colorado after graduating college. Um, you know, growing, growing up in Dallas, my family actually moved to Colorado after my freshman year of college. So by the time I was done with college, you know, I was I'm moving back home, was moving to Colorado and, um, yeah, I, how did this happen? I mean, yeah, I just, I was having a hard time. Like just, I, um, I don't know. I was friends with someone who was going through like, um, disassociative identity disorder and a lot of like digging through past trauma from past experiences and stuff that was like hidden in her brain that she didn't even, it was there. And like, we were roommates and just like a lot was going on. And I like, I stepped away from um, grad school for like a quarter and I had stepped away from church also. And was also like really hurt. Cause no one at church like ever reached out to me to be like, where did you go? Like, they just sort of disappeared. Mm-hmm. Um, but like the thing is that I was, I also like my experience and even today, I feel like from the from before I came out until today, church also, I feel like I could, and I I can only sort of put language to this now. I didn't see what was happening at the time, but seems to me like it seemed to me pretty obvious that when new people came into the church that I was going to at the time, and they were either straight or coupled, they were like, easily accepted in. Cause it was like, oh, you make sense here. Like in this bigger friend group of people who were like starting, like they're married by the time, you know, like a lot of people were married already, or they were like, you know, significantly coupled in some way and all straight, you know? And so like, I would see new people come in and just so easily be integrated into like social community when they join the church. But I just like always felt on the outside. And I'm sure that's partially partially excuse me, partially my own story, but also like a reality. Like I actually just wasn't being sort of integrated in the same way. Like I did, I was not being invited to the same sort of social stuff or whatever. So I had a really hard time with that. And, um, yeah, so I, I just wasn't fitting in and, um, I think in the same ways that other straight people were frankly. And I just felt really hurt when no one sort of showed up when I backed away from church. And so then it was like literally 10 years before I even stepped into a different church um, and sort of going through that process. So I told people like all of, basically all of my close friends at that point were already people who weren't like, they didn't know I was, you know, dating women yet, but like, they were going to be cool with it for the most part. It was the people when I came out that I had been to college with, cause it was a faith-based college who were the only ones who were like, no, <laughs> like this is sinful. I don't think God approves. Basically we can't be friends anymore. Um, but I faced relatively little of that. Cause I was 27 by the time I came out. So like I was already like well into sort of young adulthood and um, yeah, I didn't face a ton of issues with it, but yeah, there was no, by the time I started to walk, I guess what I mean is like, by the time I started walking into a church again, I was queer. Like there wasn't any coming out to do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: It's interesting. Cause I'm 27 now. Hmm. Um, so weird, but was, I guess from the moment that you decided to come out all the way leading up to it, mm-hmm. did you have a sense of queerness beforehand or was it kind of like you were dipping your toes in it until you were like oh this is right okay yeah I feel
1: like we all like we all have a like whoa when did this really start yeah (laughs) Um, yeah, I mean I remember um I mean looking back I remember being like oh I was attracted to her like that was not just (laughs) like friendship you know um that explains why I was so like oh, let's be really good friends, you know? Um, so I had several of those stories for sure. Um, but yeah, I did, there wasn't really any toe dipping. I mean, I I was 27. I had been through just a lot of like challenging stuff in life um, around the time. And I don't know, I remember sitting down at the front. I had been roommates actually with a couple, um, a man and a woman, for about a year and we had been really good friends for a handful of years and when we became roommates um toward the like middle or end of our time as roommates together I remember the wife sort of being like oh I dated like she had been with her husband for 10 years but she was like oh I dated women mostly before I married this person um which I had never heard in all of our time as friends and um they after we stopped being roommates, they, they divorced. And I sat down with that friend and she was like, Oh yeah, I'm dating a woman now. And I was like, man, what is happening? This is so what? And I actually remember I had this really funny moment of being roommates where we were sitting in the living room and she was like, Oh yeah. Like telling me about all of the stuff and former people she dated. And I was like, Oh, what happened is I had another friend that I met actually on a trip to Rwanda, which is really bizarre. Um, but that friend also lived Near where we lived back home, and also came over one day to be like, I'm dating a woman. And I was like, I remember being in the living room with my roommate, this friend, and being like, Am I gay? Like, I, (laughs) everyone around me is turning gay. Like, I don't understand what's happening. And she's like, No, 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 not you. I was like, Okay, interesting. But like, after we moved out and after they divorced and she had started to like date a woman, I was like, I think I'm into this. Like, I think I want to start trying to date women. And she was like, Oh, I know somebody. And I was like, what, (laughs) that's so bizarre. (laughs) She's like, Yeah. I think there's someone that you might dig. And so she connected us over like Facebook messenger and we dated and not dated. That's, that's a strong word (laughs) for what we did, but that was the first person I was really with. And then, um, yeah, from then on, I was like, literally I told everyone I knew, like, I mean, it took a, it took my dad came last for sure. Like family came last but I wasn't in church at the time. And like I said, most of my, most of my friends were totally cool with that kind of thing, if not already dating women, apparently. Um, so yeah, it wasn't, um, yeah, it it was just sort of like, I wasn't. And then I was, but for sure looking back, I see so many scenarios where I was like, it was there. (laughs) It was there. Like, you know, celebrities, even I was attracted to when I was younger and being like, okay, that wasn't just like, oh, I want to be like Elizabeth Shue. I was like, oh no, I'm attracted to Elizabeth Shue. (laughs) So yeah, (laughs) it was there, but sort of off and on switch at some point when I hit 27. Yeah. Though, which is not to say that like, I mean, even today, like I have frequent conversations with my queer hairstylists where I'm like, if I could find a man that I felt was a real value. I would sleep with a man. Like I don't um, it doesn't feel like it contains me and it doesn't feel like it would change my queerness. I don't think I would partner with a man, but like all of those notions have just like really transformed over time and they continue to change honestly day by day. It's like,
0: that's uh, yeah. Yeah. I kind of realized (laughs) one of the comments I made in my early twenties, was like men to me just feel like walking dildos, and I realized that like that wasn't <laughs> like oh we're not okay <laughs> yeah,
1: and I was this like oh be like reverse objectification yeah
0: yeah, and I was like that's not good I shouldn't do that, um, <laughs> but for someone who is kind of exploring queerness or struggling with identity, do you have any advice for that exploration or um, oh my god. Or coming out in general.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know, man. I think we all find the things that get us there, you know, like for, for the older folks, like it's watching the L word maybe, and maybe it's watching it six times before you feel ready or you know, I just heard Fortune Femster, who's the comedian the other day, say that like she was watching a lifetime movie and all of a sudden she realized, like, oh my God, I'm gay. Like <laughs> that explains so much. Um so yeah, media often helps. Like it helps us give language, it helps us see examples of what, you know, like maybe feels real to us. Um but yeah, I mean, it just it's so different depending on your context. Cause like, what if you're like a um us uh what's it called an only child like maybe you're an only child in the middle of Nebraska whose only access to anything is like the internet, you know? Um so it's kind of diff- difficult depending on your resources, but I think just like finding places where something feels sparked in you, you know, like um and dipping in where it feels comfortable, you know. Um God, I don't know. Like, I'm like, what wisdom do I have to share for, <laughs> for this? It's just like, yeah, it depends on your age. It depends on, you know, cause like, what if you're 75 and you're like, Oh God, my husband died five years ago. And I'm just realizing I'm or like, you know, like Elizabeth Gilbert is a great example, you know, like dated, was married twice, dated men. And then all of a sudden fell hard for a woman and it just like changed her whole life, you know, and she's older than we are by far. And, um, by far is a little harsh but you know like significantly <laughs> you know enough older um so yeah it just really depends but i think um as far as i'm concerned finding people or places that give you a little bit of stability helps so like if you've got one or two friends who are like no matter what happens in this process like i'm still here you know like having your anchors i think is really important because like in whatever way it happens, like you're likely going to experience something that's weird or hard. Um, and yeah, I think one of the things that's so, I think, tragic about our generation is such a lack of elders. Um, I think we have so few elders, to uh, queer elders to look to, to actually like give us this sort of advice. And maybe like, maybe I'm um, I'm bridging, I'm starting to bridge into elder as a like 40 plus year old queer, you know, but um, I think finding people who have been here and been through the issues and been through the struggles and been through all these questions, like serious questions about identity around sexuality or also like being queer enough or like any of those things that all of us have really experienced in some way, shape or form. Um, So if you can find anyone who's a kind of elder um, in some way, I think that would be really useful too. In terms of coming out though, I mean, I don't know, like I came out on Facebook (laughs) again, like I'm just, it's such a like dated, you know, like it's, it tells you like where in history, you know, like I was at, Um, but I just, I was dating, I had started dating a woman who was in a relationship with someone who was a woman, but continued to identify as straight to all of her friends and in that scenario, she was like, this doesn't feel good. Like you're, it doesn't feel like you're being actually honest about what's going on here. Um, and so when I started dating her and I hadn't fully come out to everybody, she was really not comfortable with it. Cause she just had so much trauma around it. And when she was so distrusting, it sort of ended that relationship pretty quickly And I was like, "Fuck it, I'm just gonna tell everybody." (laughs) So I just like I wrote it on Facebook to everyone who was following me, and I was like, "Listen, I just like I want everyone to know because I'm I'm tired of having to announce it to anybody, you know, like individually." And then after that, not long after that, I told like, or maybe, but I think before I announced it publicly, I shared it with my close friends, you know, so it wasn't like like they deserved to know before I told the world, Um, and then. I told Facebook and then I told my dad and that was pretty terrifying to me because I don't actually have anyone else in my close family. Like it's just me and my dad. So it was like, if this goes awry, I, I lose all chosen family. And that felt like a really big mountain to climb emotionally before I was ready to do that. Um, thankfully he responded very well. <laughs> But yeah, I, I think it just really depends on your circumstances and like whatever tools you have available in order to tell that story.
0: Yeah, that reminds me of, I think it's called Feel Good. It's May Martin's show. Yeah, I love place. that show. Yeah, I that really hit me <laughs> very hard, but it kind of touches on that feeling of like not being with someone that's not ready to come out and just, there's, there's so many different complexities with that too. Yeah. Um, my last question for you, it's a little bit similar, but um, revel and reveal has always been based on the idea that like we can romanticize life while also being open to the lessons. And that's something that you write a lot about and just mm-hmm. in your identity work and all of that. So I would love to know what is something you're reveling in currently and something that is being revealed to you in terms of a lesson or this little bit of wisdom. Yeah.
1: Um, I have, so in recent past, I've moved from sort of being more in the city to being a little bit more in nature and in Colorado, that means mountains. Um, and yeah, I'm just, I feel, I don't know, this is just like the nicest place, like the, the place I actually live in is the nicest place I've ever lived. And this this town is also just like gorgeous and wonderful. And I get to like go on what is practically a hike every morning, like a three mile hike every morning where there's like legit nature, not like city nature, like, you know, like and I, I'm also creating a boundary there too, a dichotomy that isn't real, but nonetheless, I see like deer and foxes and stuff, um, often and that I'm just like, I feel so lucky to be here. Um, it's doing a lot for my soul. So I'm trying to like really be in a state of gratitude for that instead of just freaking out constantly about losing it. You know, like what if I lose it? What if it leaves? What if I can't, you know, which again is an yeah. attachment problem. Um, uh, and then I think, um, what's being revealed to me actually has a lot to do with relationship. Again, I think sort of going back to, I just started actually um, somewhat consistently, which is again, maybe more credit for myself than is real, but um, consistently going to adult children of alcoholics meetings. um, And that has been, for lack of a better word, very sobering. And um, yeah, I think A lot has already been revealed to me there. I think partially that like, I'm so not alone. Like I, there are so many other people who battle with these same questions and struggles and relationships and work and everything else. So I'm not like more or less broken (laughs) than anybody else, um, which is always a good reminder. Uh, But also, yeah, I think revealing for me a lot of my personal patterns that are deeply related to how I learned to be in the world in an alcoholic household. Um, mostly yeah. Addiction again, like I said, addiction to chaos. Like I want things to be exciting constantly. So like I even recently was like, you know, in my work, I am very good, you know, cause you're a branding and marketing person. I'm very good at finding a company who's like pretty okay, but going in and fixing their chaos and then being like, I'm done, I fixed it. And now I'm going to leave. Um, and then that's like, I was like, oh no, I'm a fixer, which is exactly what you are when you're a child of an alcoholic is like, you fix whatever's in chaos, but you're like, you know, you sort of bounce when you can. So stuff like that has been really revealing to me and helpful. I think to bring more of the like steadiness and reliability and safety and security into my life, which I think when you're working through love and attachment issues is really beneficial. We're like building secure attachment, you know, where like good things don't scare the shit out of you and bad things don't totally terrify you. And you can find some sort of level common ground. Um, so yeah, that's a lot of what I'm working through and being revealed to me right now.
0: Thank you so much. I definitely relate to a lot of what you say with the chaos. <laughs> that is, I loved doing freelance work. I was also obsessed with working in startups because there was just something yep. so start- beautiful yeah. about that chaos. So yeah. I, yeah. Even
1: my podcast. I mean, I've realized, like, I mean, just a short story. Like, I launched that in September 2021. And um, so, was that just over a year ago? And I had never done anything that felt so purposeful. And I mean, like really like sort of what you're talking about, like twin flames, soul aligned, but like in a way where I was like, this doesn't feel, um, it doesn't feel like, especially as someone who's like a writer or an artist who I think we also have a tendency to be like, I'm going to start this project, but I never finish it. I'm going to start this project, but I never finish it. Or like, I'm going to try a new medium. And like, really what you're doing is just avoiding actually producing any work. Um, And this felt to me like, this is the thing, like for 40 years of my life, I really struggled to find what felt like really like purpose work in my life and branding and marketing did not feel like that. It felt like what I used to monetize my spiritual gifts, basically, um, which, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, I hope spiritual people monetize their gifts, but that was like a different way I was monetizing anyway. So this to me was like, I was made for this, like this content. And what I talk about, like is really meaningful to me. It became clear to me that it had always been something I was interested in. And so when I started doing it, I had people who were like responding, like the way that you hear but you know, like people who were like, Oh my God, I needed this. Thank you for doing this thing. Oh my God, this is like, please don't stop. You know, like I was just getting such incredible responses and feedback. And then I got several months into it and all of the like, new shine, like the chaos of busting out, like all of the, like everything you need to do in creation mode, like creation mode was chaos. Once I got beyond creation mode, I started to have attachment issues where like I saw in the last several months where like, if I started to try to do the work, I would get scared and my body would shut down. If I stopped doing the work, I was like, I have to start doing this. Like I can't not be doing this, which is a sort of classic. Um, what's the word? Not mixed, but like um, it's both avoidant and anxious attachment.
0: Disorganized, I think.
1: Yes. Disorganized. That's what I'm looking for. So I realize that like those attachment issues happen there too, you know? And so I think I'm coming to a place now where I'm like really working on some of the attachment stuff so that hopefully I can engage not just with like my love, Relationships, but also with my work in a way that like doesn't just undo me. You know, like it doesn't have to be chaos, but it also doesn't have to be totally fucking boring. So, yeah, yeah.
0: (laughs) That definitely touches on. I am a firm believer that like work and love are they show up in similar ways to us. So, you definitely touched on that.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I mean, I often tell people because I work a lot in business stuff. Like, business is ninety nine percent an inside job. And, you know, so is love, you know, like they're both like containers by which I think we work out what we need to work out. And through that, the beauty of it is like offering our gift to the world, both in work and in love, right? Like we're here to give those gifts, but yeah, it's mostly an inside job, which is really annoying, (laughs) (laughs) really, really quite annoying.
0: Yeah. Um, Well, I hope people connect with that because i feel like that's a universal <laughs> feeling yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yes. i'm going to um and that there for you just Great. to respect your time but thank you so much for being on i really appreciate it um your i don't know your authenticity shows really well whenever you speak and i just love hearing it so oh, thank you thank for you. sharing that
1: Thanks, and yeah, thanks for the sort of like I don't know. It's, it sounds like it's a vulnerable place and time where you're at right now, I'm just sort of asking some of those big
0: questions. So, <laughs> yeah, I get it. You know, it. for sure. <laughs> if you enjoy this episode, be sure to subscribe to RevelReveal.substack.com. I'll put it in the show notes. Um, pricing starts at five dollars a month. We have exclusive interviews on there, exclusive newsletters, um, access to certain artwork from me. Um, Yeah, it's a great time over there. I highly recommend it.